the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast Podcast. It's Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, and this is the Steak for Breakfast Podcast, episode 336 and 337. Make sure you subscribe to the show. It's available across every downloadable podcasting platform. Find us on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Check out the Steak for Breakfast link tree that'll take the show's Instagram, our latest Substack, and verified accounts on Twitter, Getter, and True Social. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the first of our two big Tuesday editions of the show today. I'm Roan flying solo. We've got a great slate of guests coming in here. Tennessee Congressman Andy Ogles will be joining us. Newsweek editor-at-large Josh Hammer will be here as well. Political commentator David Pollack will be joining us. And we'll catch up with the Trump team and one of our favorites. Poor Epstein will be here as well. Lots of breaking news. We'll check in on the fallout from the Trump fraud civil suit ruling that happened on Friday. The Munich Security Conference kicked off this weekend. And believe it or not, there was a little bit of a push for populism amongst all of our impending doom that they were plotting. Donald Trump held a huge rally in Michigan right after he attended SneakerCon in Philadelphia. We've got all the highlights. And then we'll check in on all the rest of the headlines, including a pretty milquetoast announcement from failed presidential candidate, Tricky Nikki Haley. But before we get to any of our interviews, let's jump right into these headlines and change the way you consume your news. Smokey, this is not NOM, this is bowling, there are rules. Today, Junior, America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by! All right, everybody, welcome to the Steak for Breakfast podcast, the first of two big Tuesday editions of the show today. I'm Roan flying solo today. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back to America's fastest-growing political podcast. And jumping right into the headlines today, busy weekend. Obviously, we had the ruling come down, announced it right at the end of our second of two Friday editions of the show last week, where there was a ruling now in Donald Trump's civil case regarding, I guess what they call business fraud in regards to his properties and equity, etc. So here we are on the other side of it. The lawfare is completely out of control, and Donald Trump uh, obviously hit back hard on the campaign trail this weekend. But just, uh, you know, looking at the totality of it, $364 million in penalties that Donald Trump is going to wind up paying. There were people who were saying that if this got around $100 million, it would be absolutely ridiculous and out of control. And, you know... Eric and Don Jr. also have liabilities now in the form of fines of over $4 million each. In addition to, they will be heavily scrutinized in regards to the loans that they can apply for now, even though that this was a victimless crime and one that was done without a jury, etc. In addition to that, Donald Trump and his corporate entity, including his sons, won't be able to be officially conducting business in New York in that aspect for, I believe, at least three years. So we're going to dive right into this and Kind of break it down for you guys. A lot of breaking news coming out today. You know, we're on the heels of the Munich Security Conference that happened over the weekend. We did have some developments out of there. Uh, Donald Trump held a, a couple speaking events, delivering remarks over the weekend. First at SneakerCon in Philadelphia, and then again in Michigan. And then we just got a lot of interchangeable headlines today. Nikki Haley made an announcement this morning, which we'll get into a little bit. Kind of cringe, as you can only expect from now the only Democrat running in the Republican primary. She's almost reached final form Nikki Haley, which she will just turn into Hillary Clinton. And then 
There's some news that Meatball Ron is out on the campaign trail. Maybe with Team Trump today down in South Carolina. We'll check it out. And as the news develops, we'll bring it to you throughout the course of our two big shows today. Donald Trump delivered remarks from Mar-a-Lago directly following the ruling in New York. Let's hear it. Well, thank you very much. It's a very sad day for, in my opinion, the country. A New York State judge just ruled, and he's crooked as you could get. And a lot of people expected something like this, but not for the amount. Uh, but this is a very dishonest man. This is a man that's been overturned already on this case four times. But a crooked New York State judge just ruled that I have to pay a fine of $355 million for having built a perfect company. Uh, great cash, great buildings, great everything. It affects New York. It's mostly talking about New York, where we have a totally corrupt attorney general. She campaigned on the fact that I will get Trump, I will get Trump. Everybody's seen it. Leticia James, they've all seen it. Well, we'll be appealing. But more important than that, this is Russia, this is China. This is the same game. It all comes out of the DOJ. It all comes out of Biden. It's a witch hunt against his political opponent the likes of which our country has never seen before. You see it in third world countries, banana republics, but you don't see it here. So I just want to say this. You build a great company. There was no fraud. The banks all got their money, 100 percent. They love Trump. They testified that Trump is great, great customer, one of our best customers. They testified beautifully. And the judge knows that. He's just a corrupt person. And we knew that from the beginning. We knew it right from the beginning because he wouldn't give it to the commercial division. This judge thought Mar-a-Lago is worth $18 million, that it's worth anywhere from 50 to 100 times that amount. So we realized that. He ruled against me before he even got the case. He ruled against me. He said I was guilty. He didn't know what I was guilty of before he even got the case. And Letitia James, that's another case altogether. She's a horribly corrupt attorney general, and it's all having to do with election interference. There were no victims, because the banks made a lot of money. They made $100 million. And by the way, I paid approximately $300 million in taxes as the migrants come in and they take over New York. I paid over this period of years over $300 million in taxes, and they want me out. Oh, let's see if we can get them out. These are radical left Democrats. They're lunatics. And it's election interfering. So I just want to thank you for being here. Uh, we'll appeal. We'll be successful, I think, because, frankly, if we're not successful, New York State is gone. People are moving out of New York State. And because of this, they're going to move out at a much faster rate. They used a statute. It's a consumer fraud statute that's never been used for a thing like this before. They used it on me because I'm running for president. I'm beating Biden by a lot. We're beating not only the Republicans were beating Biden by a lot. The poll came out today, we're up 20 points on Biden. If I weren't running, none of this stuff would have ever happened. None of these lawsuits would have ever happened. Nothing would, I would have had a nice life. But I enjoy this life for a different reason. We're going to make America great again. These are corrupt people. These are people that shouldn't be allowed to do the things they do. And they're using this as weaponization against a political opponent who's up a lot in the polls and always will be, because I'm competing with a man who can't put two sentences together, who doesn't know what he's doing. And we're heading into a third world war because of this guy. We have to win this election. They're doing everything possible to step in a way, but we're not going to stand for it. 
So thank you very much. We will get back to work. Uh, it's a ridiculous award. Listen, a fine of $355 million for doing a perfect job, for having paid back a loan with no defaults, with no problems. The banks were totally, t you know, at the trial, they testified. We had an expert witness from the Stern School at NYU that made a statement. He, and I was very honored by his statement. He's one of the most respected people anywhere in the country for doing this kind of thing, expert wisdom. He said, this is one of the greatest financial statements I have ever witnessed before. And he talked about even the detail. So my numbers actually were extremely conservative. They saw this. So what the judge did is he brought down certain values like Mar-a-Lago, made it ridiculous. But the expert, after having all of this, testified it's one of the best financial statements he's ever seen. And I was honored by that. But I also knew we have a corrupt judge. He's not a respected man. And again, I said before, he's been overturned on this case by the appellate division four times already. It's a record. Nobody's ever been overturned on one case four times. And I think very importantly, and I think ultimately the most important, we've employed tens of thousands of people in New York, and we paid taxes like few other people have ever paid in New York. And they don't care about that. They, it's, a, it's a state that's going bust. It's a state that's going bust because everybody's leaving. And it's all headed up by Biden, who's destroying our country. So this is Russia. This is China. This is what you've been reading about all your lives. And it's happening right here in our country. Thank you very much. We will stop it. We will make America great again. You have my word. Thank you very much. And he didn't take any questions after that. So when you start to break down and analyze a lot of the things that the 45th president said, you have to take into consideration that he is right, uh, defeated in the appellate court several times. You also have to take into consideration the stuff that people like Letitia James campaigned on, uh, what Judge Angoron and his wife, through her social medias, have kind of proprieted over the course of the years that Donald Trump was in office, years after. You know, his wife posted pictures of an AI-generated Donald Trump where he's, like, mopping the floors and in a prison wearing, like, an orange jumpsuit. And when you look at the amount of money, it's just another case of absolute warfare waged against the former president. The E. Jean Carroll case, they originally were looking for $5 million, said they might go as high as ten. Once things got into proceedings, they're like, oh, you know, we might take 25 or less, $83 million Donald Trump was found to be liable for. In this case, same thing. They said if it got to $100 million, this would be the most ridiculous thing in the history of ridiculous things. 350-some-odd million dollars in penalties. Eric and Don Jr. did not escape the purview of the penalties, having to essentially be liable for over $4 million each. I saw Eric Trump jumped on Fox News with Ginny Perino shortly after the ruling in New York, and he was pretty heated, as you might allude to. Let's check it out. Never gives up. The president never gives up. Why? My father never. My father never gives up. He's he's the toughest guy I've ever met in my entire life, and, and he is hell bent on winning. And we're going to win in in November. And and Judge Janine, you, you know this. If he wasn't the front runner for president of the United States right now. They wouldn't be doing this. This has never been tried in New York before. There's no better real estate company in the country than than us. They would not be doing this if Donald Trump wasn't the front runner for president, beating Joe Biden in every single poll, absolutely blowing Nikki Haley out of the water. That's why they're attacking him. They're attacking him civilly. They're attacking him criminally. 
They're doing everything they possibly can. No different than impeachment one, impeachment two, the Russia hoax, the spying on his campaign, the going after Kavanaugh, the going after all of his advisors. You know, they're trying to they're doing it because Donald Trump is winning. They're scared of the movement that he's created, which is question the power in Washington, D.C. And, you know, and one more thing, you know, Judge, the appellate court has already declared victory for us in so many of the aspects of the case that the judge ruled against us on today yep the biggest one being statute of limitations right and and it's really insane he just frankly he just ignores it and and moves on but this is his way of trying to punish donald trump literally weeks before he decides to retire and sail into the sunset and it uh it has to be stopped we're better than this as a country yes we certainly are all right uh you know, and that's an interesting component that you add to the mix there, that Judge Angoron is getting ready to retire, and this will be like the crown jewels of his rulings. Again, remember, no jury. Uh, the Trump campaign wasn't allowed to use any kind of retaliatory narrative in regards to what the court and their adjusters were looking into regarding office sizes and estate worths and past taxes, you know, anytime, especially any of the banks, you know, the Trump campaign wanted to use banks to come in and say, listen, under budget and ahead of schedule was the way these loans were always paid off. Uh, There was never defaults. Donald Trump is like one of our star borrowers. And, you know, if this ruling didn't come down, Donald Trump could walk into just about any bank in the world and get a loan uh, within minutes if he wanted to. At this point, you know, they even said that throughout the course of these Business interactions, as a safeguard for the banks, the Trump Enterprise entity would offer up additional pieces of collateral in the form of business components that they had just to ensure that there was like some loan insurance for the bank. Like, you trust us, but I want you to trust me a little bit more. And it it was very interesting to see how, you know, even after the appellate rulings that they were going to just ride with this, and know that it's eventually going to be shot down. But again, it's a, it's a simple case if you can't put the toothpaste back in the bottle because there are so many people now who won't see the overall appeal or they'll listen to the mainstream narrative that Donald Trump, you know, court shopped until he found somebody that was going to overturn this ruling. But that's not the case. It's that these aren't legitimate things being brought against him. This is pure lawfare to try and bankrupt him and disenfranchise him and keep him off the campaign trail. Trump attorney Alina Habba jumped on Fox News shortly after Eric Trump did, and she wanted to weigh in on this. You know she was extremely animated and, and pretty fierce throughout the course of both the E. Jean Carroll ruling and this one. Let's hear. Two-acre lot being worth $200 million on sale for $200 million in Palm Beach. Uh, I have many more such examples. So the question is, how does the judge get away with being far more guilty of the very thing that they said Donald Trump was guilty of? I think the biggest message I can give the American people tonight is that he's not going to get away with it. Letitia James is not going to get away with it. The Biden administration is not going to get away with it. There is a point, and I want to say something that I different than I normally do. We have the order now. I'm free to speak. And let me just say, as somebody who sat there in the trial, Sean, and I'm so happy you invited me on to say this, they will not get away with it. We will come at them. We will come hard and we will literally fight until the truth comes out. There was nothing wrong. President Trump has done nothing wrong. All he has done is won a campaign 
And that is scaring them because they know when he goes back in November 2024, he is going to clean house. And that is truly the problem. It's not about Marilago's Marilago's worth. It's not worth 18 million. It's worth probably 1.5 million at the least. It is not worth Trump Tower, 40 Wall Street. That's not what this is about, Sean. You know it and I know it. This is the new form of election interference. This is a campaign that cannot succeed with Biden and Kamala. So what they have to do is weaponize DAs and AGs, have Soros back them, fund them, Reid Hoffman back them, fund them, and come after Trump, everything Trump, including his children, his company, employees that are working for him, doing their job. That is the desperation of our country at this moment, which is about to go into world war. This is crazy. And it is, it's Trump derangement syndrome. That's literally the best thing I could explain to you. And just know this, and for all those people that understand what is going on, We will win. We will fight because the facts are on our side. There are politicized judges. There are politicized DAs and AGs. But I do not have a doubt that in the end we will succeed. And she makes some excellent points. But, you know, you have to look at this. For all the interactions that people like Letitia James, Fannie Willis, and others who either have bankrolled Democrats big time in the past or met directly with the Biden White House and the Department of Justice, you can't think that this is a collaboration of some kind of coordinated event between these entities working behind the scenes. And, you know, I think Donald Trump's going to be fine in the end as far as things like the Eugene Carroll and, and this obviously witch hunt in regards to his business dealings. I don't think any of the uh, people that are expecting money are going to see a dime, but it's going to take again a long appellate process, which costs money and time away from the trail. And let's just thank God with Donald Trump running as this non-incumbent incumbent incumbent, uh, is doing so well in the polls because it doesn't necessarily seem to be hurting him that much, but it is taxing on him and the team, I can tell you that much. Guys, wherever you're listening to the show today, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio, please make sure you're subscribed to the Steak for Breakfast podcast. Helps us out big time, massages those algorithms, brings us up in suggestions for political podcasts, the Apple Top 100, etc. In addition, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram is where you'll find our social medias. Follow them, hit the notification bell, never miss out on anything we've got going on down here on the show. So there was some news regarding Donald Trump's business dealings outside of this case that was breaking late on Friday. One of our great guests and good friends, he's the current CEO of, of the Trump Media Group and... Acquisition apparatus, Devin Nunes, is nearing completion of the merger for True Social to bring it live and make it playable on the marketplace, you know, public entity right there. And I think one of the big things that a lot of people are starting to not realize is whether Donald Trump's being liable for $84 million to Eugene Carroll to $350 plus million to the state of New York in regards to his business dealing True Social and their merger and going public are going to be worth a whole hell of a lot more. Let's hear it. Is there any good financial news for Trump? Yeah, so very interesting. And Audie, in fact, was the one who pointed this out to me. Trump's True Social share worth. So back in 2022, it was about $700 million. Last year, it was less than $100 million. But there's this idea, essentially, that Truth Social will, in fact, be able to go public. And how much would Trump's shares be worth if it does, in fact, go public? It could be upwards of $4 billion. That's billion with a B, not million with an M. Now, of course, keep in mind that Trump can't sell these stocks for another six months. But the fact is, we've had all this bad news for Trump. This could be good financial news for Donald Trump. Harry. 
$4 billion could be True Social's value after this merger and going public. What an absolute slap in the face to all these people who are trying to persecute Donald Trump right now it would be more than fantastic. You know, and, and just to think of all the hard work they're doing behind the scenes, I know everybody saw what happened in Philadelphia this weekend. Donald Trump made a unexpected appearance at SneakerCon where you might not think the crowd was very MAGA, but after the chance of fuck Joe Biden and USA bookended Donald Trump speaking, he launched a limited edition small batch of America First high top sneakers that were all gold. They had some uh, garnishment of red, white, and blue, and they just looked absolutely phenomenal. Thousand made, a thousand sold in minutes, and he signed a bunch from there at the events for people who that were getting them. So Donald Trump continues to do what he does. I mean, the true social merger is going to be like the nth degree of trolling, like his NFTs and the sneaker deal and things like that are. And I, I think it's really important for you know people to understand that. He's going to be okay. But like I said, taking away from minutes on the campaign trail, dollars out of his bank account when it comes to the appeals process, it's just something that shouldn't have to be happening. Don Jr. from his Twitter account, we've reached the point where your political beliefs combined with what venue your case is in are the primary determinants of the outcome, not the facts. It's truly sad what's happened to our country, and I hope others see it before it's too late to correct course. Others have seen it. I've seen on the news the last couple of days, he's been on Fox News, Fox Business, MSNBC, and CNN. Kevin O'Leary, one of the big dogs behind Shark Tank and one of the more prominent hosts there, said he's done in New York City, period. That guy's a billionaire. Guy's a huge component of driving new and thriving businesses done in New York City. And why wouldn't he be? You know, Kathy Hochul came out this weekend and essentially said, other business owners in New York don't have to worry about this because Donald Trump knows what he did, and now the public knows what he did. Completely targeted, partisan bullshit. And again, over the weekend, this is Donald Trump from his true social account over the weekend. Why was the corrupt New York State Attorney General, Letitia Peekaboo James, allowed to dump her lawsuit using a never-used-for-this-before statute with no defaults, no complaints, no victims, only success, Onto the desk of Trump-hating, radical leftist judge, Arthur Ngoron, one of the most overturned judges in the state, four times on this witch hunt alone. You can't pick your judge, which Bragg did, and deranged Jack Smith did in D.C. as well. These cases should all be thrown out. They make a good point. Dr. Ben Carson, he weighed in on X this weekend too. You know, he's been on the show a couple times. He'll be back in early March and... He's been talking about how this country has been slipping and slipping fast towards a banana republic. He kind of promoted the same narrative once this ruling came out on Friday night. I'm going to read it for you right now. It's official. America is now a banana republic. I'm appalled and truthfully, I'm saddened. I'm more motivated than anything. Motivated to bring real change to this nation. So today, read the stories, read the comments, and let that sink in. Then tomorrow, use it as motivation to help get real Donald Trump back in the White House this November. This is the United States of America, and we are never finished. As a republic, if we the people can keep it. Phrase we've been hearing a lot more of recently than not. I've got a couple commentary clips on this and and some interesting angles that I do want to touch on with you guys as we're trying to paint the full picture of not only the 
ruling itself, but the fallout from it, and a lot of the components that are probably going to go into it eventually getting overturned in appeals court. I saw Dana Perino had one while she was on the five, and she was talking about some of the major issues that and red flags that this case brought up, especially the timing in regards to the proximity of the primary season that we're in right now. Let's hear her. Judge, I did wonder about this, that the judge, there was no jury. And why did they even, if the judge was just going to do this anyway, why did they make President Trump come up over and over again and sit in the courtroom for days to try to basically get what was going to happen anyway. There it is. Well, you're right. The judge had determined that the president was liable. It was just a question for how much much the damages would be, except there are no damages because, as Greg just said, they never defaulted. They paid every loan on time. They paid some of the loans in advance. They never breached a covenant. In addition, uh, they added extra collateral to a lot of the uh, uh, assets so that they were considered top tier platinum borrowers who would get money today in a second. And when Hochul comes out and she says, you know, uh, don't worry, and she should just as well have said, don't worry, we were just out to get Trump. You'll- and there it is, just out to get Trump. You know, if there was never going to be a jury in this trial, why did Donald Trump have to repeatedly go sit in the courtroom? Why was Letitia James able, I mean, I know she's the attorney general and she can go into whichever court falls under her jurisdiction and sit in the back of the courtroom and stare at Donald Trump eating pistachios and dropping the shells in her purse with her heels off and her stockinged feet crossed, and just smirking at him the whole time. This was a hit job. This is political theater. And this is to disenfranchise Donald Trump in the general election. Last one I got, bringing kind of a semblance of legal aspects of where this is going. Before we jump in with Newsweek editor-at-large Josh Hammer, who himself is an attorney and can help us weigh in on this ruling and some of the other stuff that's going on, let's hear Greg Jarrett. Oh, I don't think it would, even though the highest court is occupied, uh, the full court, by seven justices appointed by Democrat governors. But even they would look at this and say it's ludicrous because under the law, Guy, damages must always reflect the measurable harm. Here there was none. Not a single person lost money. Nobody testified they were injured. Just the opposite. Lending banks made enormous profits. So you know, how in the world you can use a consumer protection statute where the consumer has not been harmed is, is a legal mystery. You know, the bank- Again, an excellent point. And one that we'll take into, I guess, the start of the appeals process now. Again, I, I don't feel like Donald Trump in this case, with the ruling monetarily or in the E. Jean Carroll case, none of these entities are ever going to see an actual dime from him. That doesn't mean he's not going to have to waste so much over a hundred million dollars in legal fees already and, and and when you look at the fact that his businesses continue to thrive with now the true social merger and going public it's like why is he even continuing to push the brand when all these people are just trying to rip it out of his pockets before it even gets to his bank account questions that we're going to be able to ask josh hammer in just a moment and ones that we'll be tracking as we always do here on the podcast But before we get to our interview, let's jump in with one of our partners. I think it's time we had a conversation about a good night's sleep. Pillow King of Minnesota, Mike Lindell, and the apparatus known as the MyPillow family has been cranking out savings down at MyPillow for over 20 years. And for the first time in 20 years, they've changed 
the long-standing MyPillow and now have the MyPillow version 2.0. You enter promo code STAKE at checkout, you're going to get buy one, get one free. In addition to that, they've got great savings on all things like MyPillow dog beds, the Air Lindell version 1 and 2, My Slippers, and Giza Dream Everything. If you're more of a morning person, they've launched My Coffee. It's available in the bean, the bag, and the pod. When you enter promo code STAKE here, you're going to get 25% off your order or 50% off when you make it a monthly subscription. MyPillow.com forward slash steak for anything sleep related. If you want the coffee, MyStore.com forward slash steak. Or you can always talk to a qualified pillow representative. 1-800-658-8045. All right, joining us first on the show today, this big Tuesday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. He's the senior editor at large at Newsweek, a syndicated host of the Josh Hammer Show. He's also the host of his newest America on Trial. Can't wait to hear about that. Mr. Josh Hammer, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, no, it pleasure's all ours, sir. Well, we're extremely busy with all the legal stuff that's happened over the course of the last few weeks involving Donald Trump, which I know is one of your wheelhouses, not Donald Trump's legal issues, but legal stuff in general. I do want to talk to you about that. But before we even get started, I want our listenership to hear about your newest show and endeavor. It's something that I've been listening to for the last couple of weeks and have really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks so much. So this show is called America on Trial. We launched it on January 29th. So just under a month old at this point. It's a daily podcast from the first, and we're offering bite-sized, digestible, straight-to-the-point, no-bullcrap commentary when it comes to Trump's legal issues, Biden's legal issues, impeachment, foreign policy, basically anything legal that that directly affects your news cycle, that directly affects, above all, the 2024 election. And there's never a shortage of things to talk about. That is, that is for sure there. So it's been off to a great start there. 15, 20 minute episodes every Monday through Friday, right in your podcast feed. So America on trial, go ahead and check it out wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be live linking that with all of your great stuff in the show description today. So now getting into some of this legal stuff, Josh, you know, we, we haven't really talked to you since the E. Jean Carroll ruling. There's also been a ruling from Robert Hur and the special counsel led investigation into Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. If we could start on those two before we talk about the, and I'm air quoting now, fraud case against Donald Trump and his business dealings in New York that dropped last Friday, we could kind of start to paint the picture of uh, where some of this stuff is going. The Eugene Carroll case is easy to forget about, isn't it? Because there's just been so much that has happened since then. This woman had two shots at the apple. She she was successful from her perspective in both. I would say the integrity of the rule of law was not particularly successful when it comes to to both. But they found Trump liable for for sexual harassment, for for defamation. And you know what's crazy is just this past Monday evening on Jen Psaki's MSNBC show, you had one of E. Jean Carroll's attorneys, a guy by the name of Crowley, if I remember his last name correctly. He he was half joking, half seriously talking with Jen Psaki about taking a third bite at the apple and suing Donald Trump for defamation again because he had the chutzpah, he had the temerity Trump on the campaign trail in Michigan this past weekend to say that it was, quote, unfair what they were doing to him. You know, in, in what world is it defamatory to call a nonsensical sexual assault allegation against you from decades ago unfair? I mean, what a time to be alive. What what an absolutely insane poop show time to be alive. The the verdict that came uh, at this point a few weeks ago, the second verdict for E. Jean Carroll, the much bigger one, the one that was $83 million roughly, 
You had 18 million in what lawyers refer to as compensatory damages, which is what the jury estimates is needed to make her whole again. I have no idea even why that number on its own terms was so high. Then the real kicker was you had 65 million dollars in damages in, in punitive damages on top of that. Absolutely insane. That is an astronomical figure when it comes to punitive damages. It's an over three to one ratio of punitive to compensatory. There's a long uninterrupted line of Supreme Court cases that essentially says when you get to that ratio of three to one or higher, then you're in real dangerous territory when it comes to the due process clause, of the Constitution. Long story short, I think Trump's actually going to probably be successful on appeal there in that particular litigation, at least when it comes to getting that damage number quite down quite a bit. You mentioned special counsel's Robert Hur's report. So, uh, he, you know, his his citation of this longstanding Department of Justice policy against indicting a sitting president is correct. That is that, that is unambiguously correct from my perspective as a basic matter of how Article 2 of the Constitution works. The president alone has the executive power. It's not like you can have subordinates who can go ahead and prosecute him or indict him. That that does kind of raise the question as to why we did this whole song and dance routine for over a year getting this 300 plus page report in the first place, doesn't it? But it, it's kind of a political gift to Republicans, honestly, when you, when you, when you think about it, given the fact that there's just so much grist in here. There's so much meat in here about Joe Biden's debilitating mental condition. A lot of stuff that the Democratic media and party elites have tried to hide from us. They really can't avoid this conversation anymore. And the real cherry on top is when you recognize the fact that this report that Robert Hur submitted was in theory confidential. It was supposed to be a confidential report. Well, it became public instantaneously. Well, you know, who declassified it? Who made it public? It was Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland was actually the one who chose to make this report public. So clearly he deemed that it was in the national interest for folks to see this. Now, if the left and the Democrats want to start talking about how Merrick Garland is a MAGA deep state plant trying to rule the election for Donald Trump, let them make that argument. But it's totally farcical. And I'm happy that the report is out there. You know, it was interesting to see the way that kind of went down and who, as you alluded to, Merrick Garland has to be the one who, you know, deemed it fit for public consumption. I, I think when you look into this special counsel thing, Josh, I mean, you're kind of seeing it. We hear it from the mainstream press. We hear it from both sides of the aisle now. Uh, you know, for, for all of the people that they can march out and say Joe Biden is, and I'm using their talking points sharp, and they have to heavily prepare for, you know, these long, hour-long meetings with them. But then when the American public sees the direct opposite, it seems like the deep state is trying to, I saw the narrative this weekend, it was like the heroic abandonment of his re-election aspirations they are pushing back hard on, on keeping him as the nominee and trying to make it to where they can get unified before the dnc convention and not have an incident there with you know the switcheroo of the superdelegates and things of that nature what do you think yeah that's my read on it as well i i think for a while maybe a year and a half two years ago you, you did have this somewhat concerted effort to try to get joe biden to not seek re-election you had Michelle Goldberg, who's a longtime progressive New York Times columnist, she wrote a column essentially urging him to not run for re-election in the summer of 2022, back when inflation was reaching 9% annualized 40-year high inflation at that point. And then you later had David Ignatius, a longtime liberal columnist of the Washington Post, who was even more explicit than Michelle Goldberg was in this column, Ignatius, I think this column was this past year, basically said, don't do it. Like, do not run for re-election. You're going to cost your country. You're going to cost your party. Really could not have been more explicit about that. But at some point, at some point within the past six to eight months or so, 
they've realized that he's serious. They've realized that Joe Biden, to the extent that someone who's in his 80s with a woefully debilitating physical and mental condition can be serious, they've realized that he's actually serious about giving this thing another go and running for re-election. From the moment that that reality sunk in, they really had no choice there. They really had no choice but to just double down and then just kind of whip out all the stunts and pull out all the fences to try to get this guy across the finish line. So that really is what they've been up to since then. I don't think that there's any serious risk of a of a uh, of the convention floor fight or anything like that. At this point, I think the Democrats are stuck with Joe Biden, whether they want him or not. You know, and when you look at the plausible alternatives, at least the ones that a lot of people propriate in the media, there's, of course, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, Kamala Harris would obviously be one A to Joe Biden because you can't just disregard the first self-proclaimed African-American woman vice president and not give her a shot when she's the sitting vice president to run for election if Joe Biden wasn't going to or in the election cycle after. It kind of sets up a little bit of a problem for the Democrats because, number one, you don't want to burn your bench. Number two, you essentially can't put two females on the same ticket in this day and age. I don't think the American public is ready for that yet. It's just the kind of the way it is. It doesn't matter if they're qualified or, you know, if they'd be the best candidate to run the country. I just don't think a woman-woman ticket is something that the American public essentially wants right now, uh, especially when our standing in the world is uh, probably weaker than it's been in, in several decades. In addition to that... You risk burning one of these candidates in a head-to-head matchup with Donald Trump. Say they do run a darling like a Gavin Newsom or someone of that nature, and they wind up losing in November of this year. Uh, what are you going to do? You're going to have this person run as like the savior of the Democrat Party in 2028 when they lost a head-to-head matchup with Donald Trump, who they said was the worst candidate in the history of candidates anyways? Right. So th- there's there's really no particularly good solution for all the reasons that you just, I think, accurately said. The Kamala Harris thing in particular is one of their biggest problems right now because you, you they're already hemorrhaging support when it comes to black voters. You've seen upward to 25 percent of young black men who, according to some pollsters, are either saying that they're going to vote for Trump or planning on it. It's, it's hard to say. That's a very high percentage. And black voters in particular are not necessarily huge fans of, of the president's handling of, of the Israel-Gaza conflict, probably next to Arab Americans. They are the group that polls most negatively when it comes to his handling of that particular conflict. So if you're going to replace Joe Biden, I mean, you kind of have to go with Kamala Harris, right? Because you have to, I mean, it's stupid. It's really dumb, it, this, but this is the way they operate. I mean, this is the way they operate when it comes to intersectionality, identity politics. When you say that you can't risk losing the black support anymore, then you're not going to bypass the black vice president. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're just not going to do it. I mean, you had people like Charlemagne the God, as he yep. calls himself, who who in this interview was saying, oh, Joe Biden, you got to let Kamala Harris do more of the talking. She's the more charismatic one. I, I mean, I'm not sure that that's the word that I would use to describe Kamala Harris. I have a lot more adjectives that I would probably pull out of my dictionary a little faster than charismatic, but she'll sure. be it. The point is that you have... Black figures like Charlemagne, who are really trying to get Kamala part of the scene. So there's just no chance that you're going to bypass her, right? But unfortunately for the Democrats, Kamala Harris is one of the only politicians who consistently polls even worse than Joe Biden does. So they're really between a rock and a hard place. They're not necessarily going to want to toss someone who's viewed as a possible future of the party, like a Gavin Newsom, like you said. They're not going to want to toss him to the wolves, given this dumpster fire with Biden and Harris and the floor fight. So I think that they're probably just going to roll the dice and take their chances with the 80-year-old guy who refuses to step aside. Which is why I believe the lawfare has ramped up in ways that we haven't seen it, even though, you know, there's a lot of stuff that that's kind of, I think, slipping outside. And, and the bad part about this, Josh, in my opinion, is these rulings in these cases. I want to talk to you about the, the New York business uh, fraud case now, you know, and the ruling there. 
And just what we're seeing, you know, you mentioned the ridiculous amount of money to E. Jean Carroll. They had proposed going in that they'd be happy with around, I mean, this was leaked to the media, five-ish million dollars. As they got closer through proceedings, they said, you know, we might push for 10. She winds up getting nearly 84 million. Same thing in the New York fraud case. They said if, if Donald Trump was wind up being fined by this non-jury trial, an extremely partisan judge, uh, more, you know, around $100 million. This would be probably one of the most ridiculous rulings in the history of rulings when it comes to this type of case. $350 plus million he was fined. His sons were both fined. They said their fines probably wouldn't be even around $1 million. They're both now liable for $4 million plus each. And this is going to head to the appeals process with the appeals that have already been, you know, ruled in this in Donald Trump's favor, it seems like. But you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. This is a clear case of election interference, in my opinion, and a disenfranchisement of Donald Trump in the general election. Not really in the primary where you see his numbers continue to stay the same or continue to go up, but in the general election, there's these people who don't regularly consume the news, who aren't as involved heavily, and they see like, you know, now Donald Trump has to pay all this money because he did this, whether or not it's true. And if an appeals court goes and, and rules in Donald Trump's favor and lessens or throws out any of these rulings, all they're going to say is, oh, Donald Trump finally found a judge that would rule in his favor and continue to, you know, wreck the Trump name as we head towards the November election. Yeah, I think that's basically all right. And, you know, this most recent ruling, the one in Justice Arthur and Goron's courtroom, the so-called fraud case has, you know, more holes in it than I could possibly count. I mean, let's start with the fact that Tish James, the attorney general of New York State, when she was literally running for office, was bragging on the campaign trail about how from day one in her office in Albany, how she was going to stop at nothing and pull out all of the stunts, pull out everything imaginable to try to prosecute Donald Trump or to use the levers of the state against Trump in any way necessary. Now, interestingly, this case on the so-called fraud case against Trump and the Trump organization, it, it's styled as a civil lawsuit. It's not actually civil as, as a criminal lawsuit. The media is always quick to point that out, which, which itself is totally bizarre. I'm not entirely sure why we have this use of taxpayer resources where you are pursuing a civil case on behalf of on behalf of whom exactly? I mean, that's kind of the point, right? So a, so a, a, a criminal prosecution is a use of state power to defend the states, to defend whether it's a state or the country. That's why the criminal cases are United States versus someone or Texas, because the state has an interest in prosecuting criminals because they are criminals. You know, it, it makes sense. But this is a civil case. So uh, who who is the alleged victim that the state feels so compelled to step in as a third party intervener and then use taxpayer resources on behalf of? Well, there are no victims. These are there are very sophisticated financial institutions, you know, counterparties like Deutsche Bank, a, a bulge bracket institution that was engaged in, in, in handing out loans to the Trump organization. And, you know, could we quibble over over what the exact square footage was over 40 Wall Street or the Trump Tower triplex at the penthouse? Sure. Of course, we can, we can quibble over it. The point is, these are sophisticated counterparties who have their own appraisers. They are able to appraise the properties before they give out loans as they want. These are big institutions with a lot of people. They recruit from the best universities, the best MBA programs. And you know what's the kicker here? The kicker is that Deutsche Bank and companies like that, no one lost any money. Like, like I haven't been able to discern that there is any kind of a victim here. So maybe, maybe you really want to argue that they're victims insofar as they could have made slightly more money if they had 
appraise something a little differently there? Well, again, you have your own appraiser. So, I mean, whose fault ultimately is it that you're taking the, the other guy's word and not actually doing the due diligence yourself? It, it's just totally ludicrous. It's even worse when you talk when you think about the facts that, you know, who is going to go do business in New York State, whether you're a CEO trying to find a place to headquarter your company, whether you're in the venture capital business trying to figure out where to deploy capital, whether you are an entrepreneur trying to become the next Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg out of your garage. Why, why would you do any of these activities in the state of New York where now you see that the state is going to use taxpayer resources to do this whole civil fraud song and dance to essentially try to bankrupt you, deny you the ability to be an officer in a corporation in that state? The whole thing stinks to high heaven. That's why you've seen Kathy Hochul try to do mop-up yep. duty on Monday. She had this press conference where she basically said, oh, if your last name is not Trump, you're going to be okay. Well, I'm not sure where she learned that that was an okay thing to say for a governor in the American civics textbook because that's certainly not the version of America that I learned when I was going through through elementary school and high school. I mean, you can't say Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank said he's done in New York and he encourages anyone looking to make a career in the business field, especially in, in the building industry, to to not do business there because they could say it, but it doesn't mean they surely ain't going to do it. You don't know if, if you know voter records could be going to. Uh, opposition forces right now to where they could see if you're a registered Republican, they're going to start scrutinizing your business dealings. I mean, and, and you know, the victimless crime aspect that you, you kind of highlighted, Josh, I mean, that's the thing there. There was no jury that was going to weigh in on this. You've got a judge who is extremely partisan, and there was a lot of stuff leaked online from, you know, his family, his wife especially, uh, posting pictures of Donald Trump in, in jail, mopping the floors, and, you know, all the way down to what Letitia James has done throughout the course of her campaigning to get the DA ship there in New York and what she's done with it since. Uh, you know, find me the man and I'll find you the crime. They found Donald Trump and obviously one of the most ridiculous rulings that we've seen in modern times. So we're going to leave it at that. We are going to be live linking everything you've got in the show description today. Always a pleasure sitting down with you, Josh, kind of highlighting everything for our listenership and uh, providing a little bit of clarity on it. But if you want to tell everybody where they could find you on social medias and, and all those other places, that'd be great. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it these days at Josh underscore hammer. Instagram is Josh B hammer. And you can find both of my shows, the Josh Hammer Show and America on Trial, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. And then I write a weekly syndicated column as well that's available at Newsweek and then a whole host of other Right of Center publications as well. This is the senior editor at large at Newsweek, syndicated host of the Josh Hammer Show. Got to check out his new one, America on Trial as well. Mr. Josh Hammer, thanks for jumping in with us today and we'll see you soon. See you soon. I know people have heard what, you know, Trump said and you know, they've criticized it and they said, well, Trump is going to abandon Europe. I don't think that's true at all. I think Trump is actually issuing a wake-up call to say that Europe has to take a bigger role in its own security. Germany, just this year, will spend more than 2% of GDP, okay? Uh, that, of course, is something that we had to really push for in the United States, and it just now has finally cleared that threshold. But it's not just about money spent. How many mechanized brigades could Germany field tomorrow? Maybe one maybe one, okay? The problem with Europe is that it doesn't provide enough of a deterrence on its own because it hasn't taken enough of a, it hasn't taken the initiative in its own security. I think that the American security blanket has allowed European security to atrophy. And again, the point is not we want to abandon Europe. The point is we need to focus as a country on East Asia and we need our European allies to step up in Europe. Jumping back into the news portion of the show now, and that was Ohio Senator J.D. Vance, who spoke as part of a panel at the Munich Security Conference, which happened over the weekend. 
this past weekend. And, you know, he's raising a lot of excellent points there as senior editor-at-large at Newsweek syndicated columnist and show host Josh Hammer just made in regards to all of Donald Trump's legal battles as we joined him, as he joined us again today after some extensive travel that he's been doing here on the Steak for Breakfast podcast. Jumping back into the news portion of the show. So this was essentially like a Davos light. You have all of these global elites, the oil executives, the cybersecurity morons, um, every single person who's, you know, Johnny Big Balls and everybody's government there talking about how they have to look out for disinformation and meat is bad and, you know, Russia is doing all this crap when places like China, North Korea, and Iran are doing 10 times more, especially when it comes to cybersecurity and eventual warfare with Iran on course to have a nuke in some point in the immediate future, uh, especially with Joe Biden in control right now. But, you know, you saw all of these elites there, Hillary Clinton, Soros family, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, fresh off the heels of his impeachment in the House last week, jet set over to Munich to hang out and and rub elbows with everybody else who actually took care of border security, places like (laughs) Egypt, not Mexico, and uh, Ukraine, as they're trying to do right now in regards with all the money we're sending over there. Remember, over 65 border walls worth of cash, funding, aid, and military equipment have gone to the greatest war and border dispute in the history of the galaxy. And uh, what have we gotten for it? Well, the migrant crisis and and amount of illegals crossing every day, week, month, and year under Joe Biden continues to break records on almost a daily basis. So it wouldn't be an international summit talking about security Unless you heard from Cookie Monster himself, Vladimir Zelensky was there. Apparently, when it's grifting for cash, he can always leave the greatest theater in the history of war zones and come and make sure everybody is reminded that he says when the war is over, now give me money, cash, credit, or loans. Let's hear it. International tolerance of the lack of rule of law in Russia after 1991 and Putin's policy of controlled poverty have led to the fact that human life is worthless for the Russian state. In addition to this, Putin's years, years of self-isolation and his impunity have led to his complete degradation. Absolutely. He, He now openly justifies Hitler, absolving him of responsibility for World War II. And he has made the genocide of our people just an ordinary part of his policy. Putin kills whoever he wants, be it an opposition leader or anyone else who seems at the target exactly to him. After the murder of Alexei Navalny, it's absurd to perceive Putin as a supposedly legitimate head of a Russian state. And he is the thug who maintains power through corruption and violence, coming to his so-called inauguration, shaking his hand, considering him an equal means to disdain the very nature of political power. One may have different attitudes towards international institutions, but the International Criminal Court's warrant for Putin's arrest for kidnapping and forced deportation of children from Ukraine clearly demonstrates where Putin's so-called 
career should end. Oh. He has only two options ahead. To be in the dog in The Hague or to be killed by one of his accomplices who are now killing for him. Fuck you. I hate you. I just can't stand the guy. You know, and he would go on to say, now, now don't, don't ask me when the war it will be finished. It finished when Ukraine's boundaries of never have been reestablished of retreat. Now send us the money and credit. And if you don't have the credit, make it, make it a loan. More of the same bullshit from that guy. I am so glad that Speaker Mike Johnson, MAGA Mike Johnson, who made it on down to Mar-a-Lago again this week, has pulled the Uno reverse card on Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and decided to hold the supplemental aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan hostage, much like Chuck Schumer has with H.R. 2, the 2023 Border Security Act, for now almost eight months. We're not going to be able to get any kind of spending regulation and take care of the things we need to take care of here, then we damn sure ain't sending more money and munitions over to Ukraine to volley long-range weaponry and continue to piss off Vladimir Putin. And it's not about supporting Russia or their endeavors there. They're 100% in the wrong. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot continue to poke a national superpower like this and think that nothing's going to happen. It's just not the way the world works. And for people who continue to promote this asshole and give him a stage and a platform are the ones that are directly contributing to the problem, which can only be solved with a ceasefire and eventual peace treaty. You know, I saw there was some brilliant reporting coming out of there. And someone, probably from Politico, who wanted to remain anonymous, in addition to the four senators who supposedly gave this commentary, and this is just how bad it's getting. This is from Inside Paper, who reported on it. Four American senators recounted a story Ukrainian officials told them at the Munich Security Conference this weekend. And here we go. A soldier in a muddy trench with Russian artillery exploding nearby continued scrolling and refreshing the feed on his phone, looking for signs that the U.S. House of Representatives would approve military aid. That again is per politico. Absolutely fucking ridiculous. And, you know, Vladimir Putin made some headlines outside of his incursion into Ukraine this week when one of the largest opposition, if not the largest opposition voice in Russia died in prison uh, being captive at the hands of Vladimir Putin, and that's Alexei Navalny. So he's dead, and now there's a fight over the body. Uh, There are rumors, uh, again, I can't confirm anything because I'm number one, not a geopolitical expert. Number two, I'm not on the ground there saying that the body's not going to be returned to the family for at least two weeks. And there are a lot of people in the media who are signaling that he may have been killed in the same way that they attempted to kill him several years ago when they tried to poison him with radiation. So some scary stuff. Almost as scary as every time Joe Biden steps out in public. And during his extended stay over President's Weekend in Delaware, eating ice cream and and going in and out of coffee shops, scaring people, he wanted to remind everybody about the greatest war in the history of the galaxy and put a little pressure on Speaker Mike Johnson. Let's hear him. The idea that we're going to walk away from Ukraine, the 
idea that we're going to let NATO begin to split is totally against the interests of the United States of America, and it is against our word we've given so since Trump, since all the way back to Eisenhower. So it's about time we make sure that Congress come home and pass the legislation funding NATO. It's critical. Asshole. I don't know what else you could say about this guy. He's just an absolute joke. You know, to to see how legislation passed in the House has gone on to be DOA on arrival in the Senate, now that Mike Johnson is holding these things hostage here, it puts a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to really want to reconsider the lack of border security that they've displayed over the course of the first three-plus years of their administration. It's it's spiraling out of control down here. You know, where we've seen, and we'll hear from Governor Greg Abbott in our next edition of the show as we're running through some headlines. He had a big announcement down in Eagle Pass yesterday, but the amount of people crossing at that disputed area in Shelby Park has ridiculously been reduced. And now they're starting to see one of the biggest upticks in migrant crossings out here in Southern California than we've had in decades. People from over 100 countries, but mainly getting inundated with Chinese illegal aliens crossing. Fighting age males, everybody's favorite. Probably not doctors, lawyers, and engineers. More like soldiers, spies, and people who are going to absolutely ruin every component of American everything. Guys, wherever you're listening to the show today, hopefully it's on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're following or subscribe to the show. Just hit that plus follow button on Apple Podcasts. Follow on other platforms or subscribe. It's free 100%, and it helps us out big time. In addition, find us on social media, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Follow the accounts at the notification bell. Never miss out on anything Steak for Breakfast, our weekly newsletter, our top-tier shit posts online, and any news that we're breaking headlines and potential guests that we're going to be having on the show. So the Prime Minister of Albania, and I alluded in our show intro today, there was some brief hints of populism interwoven into this security conference in in Munich. And, you know, you saw Viktor Orban during his speaking event said he knows the answer for peace is Trump. And even though he suggested that Hungary doesn't interfere in international elections, especially with partners like the United States, even though our relationship is a little beat up at this point due to the lack of enthusiasm from the Biden regime, he says that he knows Donald Trump can fix NATO, can end these wars, and help get the world back on the right track. Well, it was during a panel um, with empty suit Secretary of State Tony Blinken in attendance that the Prime Minister of Albania pretty much said the same thing to Tony Blinken. The world and NATO was a lot better place when Donald Trump was president. Let's hear it. Congress and Senate, I think I should not go there because let's say that the American politics nowadays is not at its best. But uh, one thing I can say, I had the privilege to be Prime Minister of Albania in NATO when the foreign president was, uh, was there. And uh, despite the rhetoric, despite uh, the colorful way to confront uh, adversaries, I don't see that NATO was weakened. On the contrary, what was uh, decided before continued to be the case. Every country continued to, to uh, 
put more money yep. and to put more effort in increasing the NATO budget. So uh, now elections are elections. Trump is Trump. Uh, American politics is American politics. But I think United States is something more than that. I mean, he's sitting there staring right in Tony Lincoln's face and like, hey, listen, we understand what you get when Donald Trump brings the three-ring circus of MAGA along with him. But here's the deal. Everybody paid their fair share. The world was safer. And our longstanding geopolitical adversaries seem to be one of two things, held at bay or content. And right now, if you look pretty much anywhere on the globe, it's just not the case. And it just says a lot to the night and day approach that the Biden regime has taken to foreign policy. And when you bring all of these retreads back, Jake Sullivan and uh, Tony Blinken, obviously Valerie Jarrett, Victoria Newland, and all of these people who just were absolute failures, John Kerry, Susan Rice, a little bit earlier in the administration, uh, promoting a, a DEI person like Lloyd Austin to be the Joint Chief, and you see how things have played out over the course of the last three and a half years. It makes a case these people were complete failures or unqualified to be in their position during the Obama administration, and now they're put into more prominent positions under Joe Biden or who's ever pulling his strings. And regimes who have worked with the United States for our entirety know that they can cross any red line that they want. They can take pot shots at our ships our military installations, and our soldiers. Soldiers have died. 13 in Afghanistan, a couple Navy SEALs conducting operations to combat some of the Houthis, and then you've had you know, several other deaths regarding to training close to the theater uh, where maybe necessarily we don't need to be there. What happened in Syria a few months ago? We're protecting oil fields that essentially give free energy to Turkey, who skims a little bit off the top and then gives free energy to Israel. Those people don't need to be there. Our brave servicemen and women don't need to be there. But they are, and it's something that we have to take into consideration, you know, just about how serious this is. And when, when you talk about how bad we've been on Iran and the fact that that is like probably the next big thing who's going to want some attention, we already see it with North Korea, Obviously, China's trying to figure out if Donald Trump's really going to be the president in a couple months. I'm very hopeful that they hold off on any kind of military operation. Economically, it doesn't make sense for them right now to do it um, in Taiwan. But when you listen to these people talk, and based off of their lack of experience or only one-sided views of things, it kind of shines light onto just how bad we really are. Listen to Tony Blinken talk uh, during, during a panel session at the Munich Security Conference. At the table in the international system, you're going to be on the menu. So it was very important for us to re-engage multilaterally, and we've done that. When it comes to strategic competition, and there's no doubt that we have one with China, there are a few things to be said. First, we have an obligation to manage that relationship responsibly, and I think that's something that we hear from countries around the world, and it's clearly in our interest to do so, and that's exactly what President Biden is doing. And when it comes to other countries, the point is not to say to country X, Y, or Z, you have to choose. The point is to offer a good choice. And if we can do that, uh, and I believe we can and we have and will continue, 
uh, then I think uh, the choice becomes fairly self-evident. When talking about Iran, you literally just heard him say, without saying the words, pallets of cash. (laughs) That's what the re-engagement with Iran meant. They've become an international powerhouse again, the largest state sponsor of terrorism, the strongest regional enemy of our pretty much only ally in the region, real ally, Israel. This is what these people do. Everything from the Afghan withdrawal to the Nord Stream pipeline, the I'm not going to care if it's a minor incursion into Ukraine and now with Iran, stuff that's going on in North Africa. There is just no end in sight here. And when you talk about the amount of attention that this isn't getting, because the Biden administration is literally the Leslie Nielsen from Naked Gun, everything is fine, look away, look away. (laughs) That's basically what the Biden foreign policy, don't act, don't react, overreact, everything's fine. And, And that's the way that they've kind of gone through this since Joe Biden took office. And it's because, number one, he's not calling the shots. And number two, everybody had their idea of what worked, even though it failed during Barack Obama's two terms in office. And now they're just saying, like, I'm going to do that again, but with my foot to the floor, and I don't care who we hit or run over, I'm just going to keep doing it. And eventually it it runs out of gas, or not. I guess we'll have to see. We're going to be touching on a lot of different things. Congressional-related items with Tennessee Congressman Andy Ogles right now. But before we do that, another check-in with one of our partners. This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Rubs, barbecue tools, blow torches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear for you to make barbecue great again. can be found at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs. Use the code STEAK15 for 15% off your order. All right, joining us next on the show today, this big Tuesday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast, he's the congressman who represents Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. Always happy to sit down with Representative Andy Ogles. Welcome back to the show. How are you today? Doing pretty good. It seems to uh, maybe have leveled out a little bit as far as the news cycle goes compared to last week. But when you uh, look at how busy it was, there are a bunch of things we definitely want to talk to you about. Absolutely. But I mean, hey, in in, in a Joe Biden kind of world, it's always a messy, a bunch of chaos. So there's plenty to talk about. Well, there certainly is. Uh, (laughs) First thing I wanted to get into was uh, we read your I guess if you want to call it a request last week on the show, asking Speaker Johnson to open up an inquiry into Intel Chair Mike Turner for his, I guess you want to call it a stunt he might have uh, tried to pull on the Ukraine supplemental aid package, maybe saying there was a little bit more of a national emergency than there would have. Congressman, you want to elaborate to our listenership? We, we had a couple reps on the show on Friday. Uh, Andy Harris was here, and, and, you know, he just wasn't buying it and, and thinks aid is something we definitely need to look at, but, but not in the fashion of trying to stir up the entirety of the American public. Yeah. I mean, you know, so let's go back in time. Let's rewind. So there, there's two pieces of legislation that are coming up that are struggling, quite frankly, to get passed. One would be additional Ukraine aid. And the backdrop of that is, is we have a wide open Southern border. So some of us in Congress are apprehensive to fund a war in Ukraine to protect their border when we're not securing our own. And then the other one is FISA. So that's a foreign Int- intelligence surveillance act and which, you know, on its first glance, if you will, seems okay in the sense that that's designed to prevent another 9-11. So 
It allows the government to spy on foreign individuals. But the problem is with FISA, which was up for reauthorization, is that it has all these loopholes in it that you could drive a truck through. And we know that there's uh, U.S. citizens, people here in our country, that have been spied on because they're Christian, because they're Republican. You have agents who have used FISA to spy on their girlfriends. So there's these loopholes in there that have got to be fixed. So the Judiciary Committee had some reforms to to FISA that would have fixed it. And and I want to underscore, your government has the ability to spy on you. And we we know they've spied on you. And so the Judiciary Committee, they had these amendments that would have reined in FISA. And the Intel Committee and the chairman had a fit. They didn't want to reform FISA. They wanted as it is, which would allow the Biden administration to spy on the American people. And I don't know about you, but I don't trust the Biden administration. I don't I don't trust this weaponized Justice Department. So here you go. Yeah, we're, we're getting down to the wire on this FISA reauthorization vote. Just after that, it's going to be the Ukraine aid. And suddenly there's a, an international crisis, a national emergency. There's this threat from Russia in space. And uh, we, we've, we've got to hold a press conference and tell the world. And, and so what it was, like you said, it was a stunt to scare Congress into passing these two pieces of legislation. Now, why does that matter? One, his press conference, it rattled domestic stock markets. The stock market reacted to this threat. That That's problematic that you have a chairman of a committee making statements that are so volatile that it affects the stock market. It also impacted international stock markets. And so the White House and the Pentagon had to come out and say, hold on, everybody. We've got this under control. There's no immediate threat. The chairman then said, well, we have permission from the White House to release it. Well, the White House has since said, you didn't have permission. And so, and what I would argue probably that is worse than all of the aforementioned is that the press release, the stunt, it scared the American people. It got into the psyche of the American people. And so you're going to release this information. So what? And, you know, Sally's soccer mom or Joe the plumber can go into their living room and come up with a solution. Right. There was no in game. There was no proposed next step. It was just, oh, by the way, the end is nigh. And so this was, and all I asked for was an inquiry to make sure, one, that the the process that led up to it wasn't compromised, and two, to make sure it never happens again. Now, there's kind of like two things I want to address there. The first one is talking about the supplemental aid package with the amount of issues we're having on our U.S. southern border right now, more than ever before. And it seems like in places where we you know, make gains in Texas, what Greg Abbott's done over there with uh, the park and, and taking that back over from DHS to now it exploding out in Southern California where we've seen the migrant uptick uh, higher than it's ever been since Joe Biden's taken office over the course of the last couple weeks and months. You know, to try and push this ahead of anything to do with border security, it just seems like a non-starter in the Republican House right now. And then the other issue I wanted to touch on was FISA with so many people. I mean, I already had mentioned Rep. Andy Harris, who joined us. So did Josh Burkeen, uh, two people who are very prominent in the Freedom Party and, and definitely are looking to get this FISA rework. Do you, how do you think Republicans push border security while at the same time attack getting something done with Section 702? Because as of right now, when it comes to the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, the the American public is definitely not winning when it comes to FISA. Yeah, and so and, and you know let, we'll go to the to the the border and and, and you know the the supplement for supplement for Ukraine is you know 
I think what people need to understand, and and, and I say this, I, I think America's getting it. Like you have blue cities, Chicago, New York, saying enough is enough. You've got, you know, was it the Dallas uh, mayor uh, switched from the Democrat Party to the Republican Party saying enough is enough. But that being said, is that I would argue there's something more sinister taking place, that that Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and California are being flooded with illegal immigrants. They're going to get hooked on social welfare, that the Democrats are hoping and presuming that they convert can, can convert into voters so they can hold an Arizona, they can hold a New Mexico. The other thing affects the census and reapportionment. In that if, if you, uh, you're a state like New York and you have population flight, you're a state like California, you have people moving out of California to a Tennessee or to a Florida, you need illegals in order to maintain your population so you have your same number of uh, member of Congress. And so this has both a short-term uh, financial impact, but also a long-term in how you know our founding fathers intended for the House of Representatives to be proportional representative government, meaning meaning as Tennessee grows, we have the opportunity to have more representation in, in, in Congress. As California shrinks, they'll get less. And so what they're do, doing is they're holding their populations with illegals. And so this is a much more sinister plot than I think a lot of people recognize. Because again, why, why would you allow all these people here in here illegally? I mean, you look at the state of Tennessee. It costs Tennessee $850 million to a billion dollars a year on illegal immigration. And that's, that's education, that's medical, that's food stamps that's welfare, all the things that they're suddenly eligible for. And so you have to get back to the root. Why are they doing this? And it, it's about power. It's about control. You should also understand that most of the rest of the country, or the world rather, has much more strict immigration laws than the United States. If I'm in Mexico and I'm there illegally, they're going to kick my butt out. If I'm in France with my family and we're not there legally, they're going to kick us out. And so it, it's not that complicated. We need to secure our border. We need to make sure people come in here legally. And we have to start deporting people. End of story. Now, moving on to FISA, the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment protects your right from the government searching your person or your belongings without probable cause. But under FISA, they don't have to have probable cause. They can just be like, you know what? You're a really conservative Christian. You might be up to something no good. So we're going to take a peek at your emails or your, your buying, your credit history, uh, your, what you're searching on the Internet. And the government has access to all of that. And that, that has to stop. Oh, it certainly does, and, and and you make some excellent points there. You know, I don't I don't want to take away credit where credit is actually due. House Republicans did have a pretty strong week last week, heading into the weekend, and a little bit of a break that you guys are on now, back in district, doing some work there. Because when you look at the way that Speaker Johnson was able to take the supplemental aid package from Chuck Schumer and kind of shelve it in the way he did HR two, I thought it was a great kind of let's see how this feels from the other side of the coin. In addition to that, you guys did. Get the impeachment for Alejandro Mayorkas over the threshold. Doesn't seem to have bothered him that much. He's been at the Munich Security Conference, whining and dining with some of the global elites. But at the end of the day, and when it comes to the lack of job that he's done since he took office at the start of the Biden administration, he was finally, at least in the Republican House, finally held to account. 
Well, I mean, you know, to your point, uh, I mean, when you look at the number of people that have come in here uh, unencumbered, they just flooding across the border. You know, Mayorkas has been uh, absent at the will. He, uh, at the will. He's, he's not helming the ship, if you will. So for him to go wine and dine in Europe is no surprise. And the other thing, part of that is, yes, the House of Representatives, we did our job. We had an obligation to hold him accountable. Mayorkas also knows the Senate is not going to do anything. So he, he kind of has that safety net over there to say, you know what? the Senate's going to have uh, my back or his back and just not going to do their job. I mean, they're busy. They've got tea parties. They've got lunches. They've got I mean, some bridges. I don't know, maybe a post office. You know, never mind. We have to run a country because we've sent over HR2, which is a, a, a border bill that secures the border. We've sent over uh, a package that supports Israel, a standalone package, and the Senate is not doing its job. So uh, we, for one, it's a it's divided government. We have the ability to say, you know what, that Senate bill that you sent to us is garbage. Ergo, we're not going to take it up. We're not going to vote on it. In fact, we've already sent you something that's far better. You know, and and personally, you've also pushed for some legislation. Uh, you know, I thought one of the great things I saw coming out of your accounts on social media last week was you talking about the Send Them Back Act, which directly addresses uh, the migrant crisis and all of the illegals that have crossed into the United States under Joe Biden just since when he started office. You want to tell our listenership a little bit about that? Well, so we all know we have an illegal immigration problem, uh, and it's been going on for decades. I mean, we've been talking about reforming the immigration process since Reagan, and really nothing substantive has happened since then. But that being said, is you've got to start somewhere. So my my bill, the Send Them Back Act, simply states anyone who came into this country illegally since the beginning of Joe Biden's term would be eligible, quite frankly, would be uh labeled for immediate deportation. And what that does is that starts the process of reversing this flow of individuals into our country. Look, this is our country. We get to decide who comes in. Quite frankly, we get to decide who has to leave. And if you're here illegally, you need to go back across the border. You need to go through the process. And I understand the process is broken. That's a separate conversation. It's got to be fixed. But at the end of the day, a sovereign nation should have a strong military. We should have secure borders and we should have open and fair elections. And right now, a lot of people would argue that we're not checking all three of those boxes, if any of those three boxes. And so we've got to get our house in order, our fiscal house in order, our, our literally our borders in order. And, and quite frankly, get our military out of the business of being woke and DEI and, and making it a lean, mean fighting machine. When you have China that has greater shipbuilding capability than we do, when you have Russia and China focused on and building supersonic missiles and perhaps uh, you know applications for set space, we've got to get back on target and focus and build a mean, lean military. But right now, they're too busy with this woke nonsense. And so we, again, have to get our, our house in order before we secure Ukraine's borders. And if there's one or two exceptions to are there nations that are critical to our safety, to our sovereignty, to our international trade and relations, that would be Taiwan and Israel. And we should help them. We should support them. And we should equip them so that they can defend themselves and so that we're never drawn into a boots on the ground uh, combat with their adversaries. Seems pretty simple. And then when you want to talk about priorities and, and things that benefit the American people, did you find it laughable? coming a week after the, I would call it pretty damning report from Robert Hur and the special counsel that led the investigation into Joe Biden's handling of classified materials when he was vice president and maybe even senator, uh, saying that Mike Johnson should reconvene the House immediately and get back to work on voting for important legislation that benefits the American people like a supplemental aid package to Ukraine? 
Well, again, you know, when you when you look at uh, you know some of the reporting about Joe Biden and you know the that uh, he, he's uh, he shouldn't be found guilty because he's uh, you know what 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 do you call him an, an older man a man with a poor memory or something like that. I mean, the state of our nation right now is ridiculous. We're a laughing stock. I mean, look with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, that sent a message to Putin that we weren't ready to to take on our adversary. So he moved against Ukraine. China's watching what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and saying, oh, look, we're going to saber rattle against Taiwan. And so when you look at the totality of what's going in the world, to your point, we've got to get back to doing business that's in the best interest of America. And I would argue Joe Biden isn't capable of doing that. I've said months ago, I do believe Ted Cruz said months ago that Joe Biden will not be the nominee that in August in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention, they're going to switch a route. Now, whether they put up a Michelle Obama or a Andy Bashir out of Kentucky or maybe a Gretchen Whit- Whitmer out of, uh, of Michigan, who knows, or Newsom out of California. But I, I don't believe that they'll, he'll be the nominee. I don't believe they have confidence in him. And so now, now the next question is this 24 election, which is critical to the future of our country. Where do we go from here? We've got to fight and hold the House. We've got to win the Senate. And we've got to rally around President Donald Trump secure his nomination. I think that's going to happen in Saturday when he kicks butt in South Carolina. And then we need to move forward and be ready for whomever they announce in August, whether that's Biden or Obama or Whitmer or whomever, because the fight for the country is going to be played out in 2024, November. No, it's the absolute truth there. I don't think President Trump's ever looked stronger, even with the last couple of civil rulings that have come against him in last month. I think the American public, as they're kind of deconstructed in the media and see how they've been built against them, have kind of been shown the light on to what this is really all about. Congressman, last thing I want to touch with you on in regards to stuff going on up on the Hill, you guys are reconvening right around the time that we're getting ready to wrap up the first step of the continuing resolution that's currently funding the government. You know, the American public uh, wants to support the House of Representatives, but also at least our listenership understands that this is the way that the government has kind of been funded for the last several decades based off of, uh, you know, the way the system's kind of built and the structure of power right now in Washington, D.C., where Republicans only control a slim majority in the House. So it's not like we're parting the seas when it comes to budgetary matters heading into the next portion of the fiscal year. But how are you guys looking to tackle this to make sure at least maybe some of the fat is uh, might be getting trimmed as part of, a, you know, a bill that's going to continue to fund the government after March 1st and 9th? Well, I've got some disappointing news uh, for you. Anytime there's a continuing resolution, America is getting screwed. So uh, so that that's what's about to happen. Uh, you know, if we were going to go through the appropriations process, so the House of Representatives has, quote unquote, the power of the purse. But for the last... 30 or so years, it really truly hasn't exercised that power. And so now what you're going to see is a continuing resolution, which will perpetuate Joe Biden's funding agenda, which is this woke nonsense, a woke military, open borders. And, you know, they claim that they're doing things on the southern border. Well, they want more money for the southern border, not to close it and protect America, but to process more people. And so unfortunately, by not being more aggressive with what we're passing and, and, and putting forward another continuing resolution, you're going to see more of the same. And it's disappointing. So what I hope will happen is we'll win the House. uh, And then when we come back in January, we'll get serious about truly passing appropriations bills and throwing down a gauntlet to the Senate and saying, look, this is our job. This is what we're going to fund. And you guys have to live within your means. But right now, uh, I would expect more disappointment uh, next week. 
Yeah, we don't hate it, but at the same time, it, it's understandable. The, the margin in, in the House of Representatives for Republicans holding the balance of power there has shifted a little bit slimmer since the start of the session. And, and mm-hmm. you know, in its entirety, we've had so many reps come through the show on a monthly basis and over the course of the last few years. We just let them know, like, this is not something that's going to change overnight. You guys have, by working out a majority of the appropriations in this session of Congress, kind of laid a better path to maybe address all of them at the start of the next session, like you just alluded to. And I think when you talk about the generational change that's coming, you see a lot of the longtime members of Congress, both in the House and Senate, who are just kind of packing it in, not running for re-election or, or retiring. I, I think the the youth movement there and the America First movement has really push these people to give up in what they, you know, considered to uh, hold dear as far as keeping this country funded. And I think moving forward, we are going to have some big changes that we're going to see in the next session of the House that's really going to help everybody that's involved with uh, getting the government funded and, and passing some legislation that's beneficial to the American public. And it's been a while and a long time coming. Congressman, last thing I want to touch with you on in general, just uh, if you wanted to touch on it a little bit, uh, I saw you launched a new podcast uh, from your congressional office recently. Awesome. First uh, episode of the show. We always want to be able to direct our listenership to check out everything that you guys got going on, especially some of our uh, supermen and women up there who are, are fighting in Congress. So in addition to your congressional website, which we'll be live linking in the show description, today, we'll, we'll link that as well. But you want to tell our listenership about that? Yeah, so I just launched a podcast. So, you know, for those that are not familiar with me, I was county executive or county mayor. Those terms are used interchangeably in Tennessee, which is uh, for the county. It's like a mini governor. It's an elected position. But during COVID, the county executives, we had the majority of authority, whether it be shutdowns or mandates or whatever. I kept my community open. Uh, I refused to comply with any of the nonsense, but I did a daily you know, podcast update as to COVID numbers, expectations, et cetera, et cetera. And I would highlight businesses around the community, that being said. So, you know, the feedback that I've gotten from my district, especially from those that know me, and I, I, I became a little bit of a folk hero in Middle Tennessee was, please start doing a podcast again. We want to hear from you. We want to see the old Andy that just kind of, you know, is being normal and cutting up. And, you know, there was one day, like my daughter and I, we, we baked cookies in, on, on a Sunday uh, for our listeners. But, but that kind of thing is, is what we're going to get back to just what's it like being a member of Congress? You know, what's some of the up-to-date news? You know, I poked fun at Joe Biden a little bit in the podcast because, you know, he confused, Egypt and Mexico. So, I, you know, towards the end, I said, you know, I'm going to try out some authentic uh, Egyptian cuisine. And I took a bite of a taco, but, <laughs> you know, kind of lighthearted. But you can go to Rep Ogles, you can check it out. But look, at the end of the day, we're normal people trying to save our country, our republic for our family, for your family. And I think sometimes it's refreshing to see that. Oh, I, have to, I have to tell you one thing. It's a, you know, you talk about everybody asking you to do the podcast. It's one of the reasons why we ask you on the show so much because our listenership really like hearing from you and uh, we'll continue to do the same. Again, uh, in addition to live linking your congressional website in the show description today, Andy, where can we find you on social media? Hey, just rep Ogles or go to andyogles.com. And I just will say to the point you made earlier, you know, the, the country is a big ship. It turns slowly. It's much like the Titanic. And if we don't correct course, there is a collision ahead. But what I will say and, and to, to offer hope is that, that we have time to fix this and we need you to engage. We need you to call your member, your house, uh, whether it's your house representatives or senator, and tell them to hold the line, to to stop spending money, to close the border, and and to do the right thing. And it's hard because we get attacked. I'm a very outspoken member of the House Freedom Caucus, so I'm constantly uh, under attack. I'm constantly being disparaged. But I ran to fight for this country. I'm not going to back up. I'm not going to back down. I'm never going to stop fighting. 
and you've been doing a hell of a job this session of Congress. Congressman, we look forward to tracking you doing it for many years to come. This is the man who's representing Tennessee 5, doing a hell of a job in the volunteer state and for all the Americans up on Capitol Hill. Representative Andy Eagles, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. God bless. Guys, we're coming back with another all-new edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. So sit back, relax, and allow us to continue to change the way you consume your news.